Welcome to the Mental Models Podcast. I'm George Baxter, and I'm a hedge fund manager for SaberPoint Capital Management. I'm Dan Krawczyk. I'm a neuroscientist and professor at the University of Texas at Dallas. And together we explore mental models. That is how we view the world and what the world gives us for feedback. It's not a brain in a jar. That's the gist. Welcome back to the Mental Models Podcast. I'm George Baxter. Dan Krawczyk here. And uh, today we are going to talk more about the investment process. And in particular, we're going to go into analysis. But before we jump into that, I do want to remind everybody that uh, we have managed to complete our book and it's available now on Amazon. It's Understanding Behavioral Bias, A Guide to Financial Decision Making. And it covers many of the topics that we talk about with more depth. And uh, we're hoping that you guys check it out. And if you do, write a review. We'd appreciate that. Okay, so today we are uh, continuing a series of, of episodes that we've done, uh, basically starting with idea sourcing and how you uh, vet those ideas, moving on then to uh, your fundamental research process. Once you have an idea and you've done some work on it, now we get into the actual analysis part, an important part of any uh, investment, and particularly this opens you up to a variety of behavioral biases. So we will talk about some best practices and uh, if you're following along in the book, Understanding Behavioral Bias, this is Chapter 8, uh, Information, in which we uh, go into much more detail on uh, specific examples here. But today we'll give you an overview of some of those good steps and uh, things that you want to avoid along the way. So typically when we're talking about analysis, it's going to start with you taking the information that you acquired during your fundamental research and putting it into a model. Sometimes these things happen simultaneously. Uh, and then generating a report. Uh, or a pitch book that contains uh, a lot of the insights that you've managed to glean during your fundamental analysis. This is actually one of the reasons we named this podcast Mental Models, is because we're always uh, developing a model of the world. Uh, in this case, uh, it's merely a model of a particular business, which is much simpler. But nonetheless, it can still be a reflected version of reality. And that's important to keep in mind that you may be open to distortions. And so being very careful about how you lay out this model and make the case for it is, is key. Yes, and once you've gone and you've put together your model and you've come up with uh, your picture of how the world looks for this particular company and your investment themes, typically you would take that to your investment club or your uh, investment team, and that, that would be provided as a pitch or a uh, period for discussion and review of uh, this particular business in which you would lay out fundamentals of the business and then the factors that you believe are the most important variables for the future operations of the business, which will drive the ultimate cash flows that the business may be able to generate. And sometimes you describe this as writing a one-page report. Is there a is there a hard and fast rule on that? Well, I think usually the one-pager is something that's going to be prepared uh, before the pitch meeting as kind of a, a simple guide to isolate each of these issues. And I think that would go and lay out uh, the most important variables that are associated with the business along with a simple analysis of valuation on your base case and uh, the various characteristics of the business, the quality of the management. You may have a score there. You may have a score for the level of operational leverage or financial leverage. Operational leverage meaning that there may be a lot of variability in the margins depending on the volume the business manages to produce. 
and the financial leverage, of course, being the level of debt. Each of these things can be important risk factors that could affect the sizing and the desirability of the investment. But most importantly, what you want to do is isolate these most important variables that would then be reviewed with the team to come up with an assessment of the weight that should be placed upon those variables and their effects on the business uh, and the probability of their various outcomes. And this will be important for avoiding uh, what's known as recency bias, which is the tendency to overweight very recent information. If you uh, focus on the fundamentals here, um, you will in some ways be resistant to uh, getting led too much by recent occurrences as news develops on a particular company. Um, and the recency bias is just part of uh, life with a memory system. We're always uh, taking in that information and it's exceptionally potent in the moment. This is an important step to get clear on what the critical factors are going to be so that you can then filter the news um, based on your assessment rather than allowing the news to drive your assessment in the moment when you've already got the, the uh, investment placed. Yeah, an important issue to avoid being swayed uh, by recency bias or by your own predetermined notion as to what you believe to be the truth with respect to this investment is for you to craft the probabilistic factors in a probabilistic fashion so that you end up with a base case a bullish case and a bearish case based off of what you think could happen. And hopefully you can look at each of those factors and come up with a probability of each of those events and what the likely outcome will be. Now you could get more complex and you could have a multitude of factors. You could have five different outcomes based off of how these factors unfold. And, you know, typically with respect to different factors, there's going to be some variation in the outcome. But the key here is not to be too rigid in your thinking, not to come to a narrative which you see to be as the capital T truth, that this is the way things are, not just likely, but that events will unfold in a manner that's consistent with your narrative. So uh, what we want to do is try to break down these most important issues that will drive performance of the company and think about the likelihood of them coming out in one fashion or another. Another real dangerous bias that can occur when you don't have this type of probabilistic thinking is base rate neglect. A lot of times we'll look at an issue and we'll make assumptions about its outcome without looking at similar historical circumstances from which we can draw conclusions about what typically happens under these circumstances and then apply that in analyzing the issue that's before us. Right, and base rate neglect featured heavily in the, uh, the episode we did on Bill Gates's brain with that uh, Netflix series where uh, in that case, with charitable giving, Bill Gates seems uh, to always be trying to do the most good for the most people in a very calculated way. He seems base rate neglect sensitive, meaning he's resistant to neglecting it. Whereas other people tend to think of kind of emotional or salient cases and then risk overestimating how common that is. So what base rate neglect is really about is just trying to get to the ground truth evidence of, of how much uh, common tendencies there are for something to occur within a particular industry. Um, if you've read the book uh, Super Forecasters by Philip Tetlock, that was all about people who are exceptionally good at predicting future events. 
one of the keys to the super forecasters was they always thought about base rates. And so uh, the, the famous uh, example of trying to answer the question, how many piano tuners are in Chicago? Um, that sounds a ridiculous problem uh, and unanswerable, but you know it's not a million and you know it's not one. And so you could start to zero in on what's a likely number based on things like the population. And so those, those are things we often overlook unless we have a very uh, compelling story that foregrounds the stats. So you have to do a little bit of work here since those numbers don't come naturally, and th- that's going to require a little effort to, to overcome the tendency to uh, neglect base rates. It's important when you think about these factors that will drive the performance of the stock because you want to isolate those circumstances where you simply can't know versus those circumstances where there's a probability that may be difficult to define the likely outcomes, and then one where you know, there's a very narrow probability set that is much easier to quantify. The broader the range of outcomes and the more uncertainty that you bring into the analysis really bodes for more caution associated with a particular investment and would suggest that that should be reflected ultimately in its sizing or ultimately in your desire to have a margin of safety with respect to valuation that will compensate for this uncertainty. Avoiding base rate neglect and uh, entertaining multiple possible outcomes really go hand in hand. You can do those two things together. If you can think in terms of probabilities, that's key because uh, what that's doing is, is emphasizing that certainty isn't what you're after. There's never one possible outcome that's, that's definitively going to be what you zero in on. Just by the notion of, of putting numbers to things, you, you start to emphasize you know, there are other ways this can play out. And that's really quite important for making predictions. The reason it's tough and the reason it's full of biases is that uh, we tend to want to make sense of our lives as we go through, and we tend to think of our story as somewhat linear. Um, And so this really requires, good predictions require you to, it's kind of like one of those old choose-your-own-adventure novels where you can pick A and it takes you to page 35 and there's an outcome, but if you pick B, it takes you to a different page and it's a different outcome. That's the way life is. And so uh, in your analysis, you know, try to think in terms of what's the likelihood of different outcomes happening. Right. And it's important to uh, recognize those circumstances where you just don't have the ability to put a probability on uh, the, the outcome. It's just too uncertain uh, to be able to come to a conclusion. You need to know where that exists and how important that factor is to your analysis. Uh, because there are circumstances where you uh, just don't have any sort of uh, rational means to be able to come up with a probability. So let's talk a little about the team dynamics, uh, whether it's an investment club or an investment group that you're in. What, what are some things we can look out for in terms of what, what do we gain by multiple people discussing prospective investment or What are some drawbacks that come about with team dynamics? So I think when you think about a team, it's helpful. Uh, to think about the composition of the team that's analyzing a particular idea. What you don't want to do is have a homogeneous group of people that think in the same way. You want to have people that are willing to step or a situation where you have one dominant personality within a team that everyone provides deference to. At SaberPoint, we try to cultivate a environment of respectful disagreement so that People feel free to be able to express a view 
that is variant from that of others within the group. And when they do express that view, we're able to talk about uh, the particular issue, and there's not this fear of being uh, wrong, so to speak. You invite some disagreement because that is how you can tease out the various possible outcomes. Uh, because often it's the case that there are a lot of different ways to look at a particular issue. Right. And this is something uh, that we've talked about before with regard to groupthink biases. Groupthink, it's an undesirable set of circumstances that come about when you have multiple people working on something. One of the worst is just that uh, once multiple people start agreeing and we tend to drift toward consensus, then everyone emerges with too much confidence and there are a lot of blind spots that actually get reinforced by the group. And that leads to undesirable levels of overconfidence and things like this. So I think in general, when, uh, when I've worked in any kind of team environment, I can think back to when I first started in grad school. One of my first research projects was about um, inferences and reasoning. And, and essentially, uh, I was pretty happy with the set of results I had. And I presented them at a group lab meeting. And I was all ready to write this up, and it was going to be a big paper. And, and this one, uh, this one kind of contrarian individual had said, well, you haven't really thought about this other way of probing for the inference. What if you changed your questions and ran another experiment with, with this one, uh, one caveat? And that turned out to be critical. So that individual was a computer scientist who was you know, thinking a little differently, more of a decision tree analyst type of person, and his insight was really critical. So... Um, when you have the ability to uh, disagree constructively, uh, that's important for uh, making a better analysis happen. And in order to have that circumstance, you would like to assemble a team of people with variant backgrounds, people that uh, have variant views, uh, perhaps even political views uh, that, that are not necessarily consistent with other people that are on the team. Uh, and having that uh, predisposition to see the world from a different vantage point really stimulate a lot of different narratives that may come uh, before the group. Another thing that's important uh, beyond just having diversity within the group and variant viewpoints is to try to talk in terms of probabilities instead of absolutes. Because if we leave the door open for the possibility that there can be, a ser- uh, there can be various outcomes, it helps us to avoid things like consistency bias and things like data mining. Uh, where we're trying to seek, goal-seek for the answer uh, that we're looking for. And when you're doing this type of work, isn't it important to try to, to generate some uh, concrete targets for at what, what uh, point you would enter a position and also Absolutely. some definitive places where you would exit to try to get a lot of your decision-making done up front so that you avoid having to do emotional in-the-moment uh, decision-making, which, which tends to be when we just choose to wing it, it's a little bit like if you're in a poker game and you stay in a hand with relatively weak cards just because you want to see how it'll play out. That's usually fairly poor decision-making. That's usually not going to work out. Um, and you, wanna, you can avoid that by playing that sort of uh, long game where you try to work the probabilities into this as a plan. Like you're just not going to deviate from what your projections are and have some pretty good benchmarks for how you should behave Uh, and stick to those. Yeah, there's a couple of things there to kind of unpack. One, when you're starting off in this investment analysis stage, you should work with the premise that you're not going to make an investment. You should work with the premise that 
Uh, this is something where you make the assumption initially that the market's relatively efficient and whatever price there happens to be on this thing is probably uh, appropriate. Uh, and that you're looking to make a determination at what price you would want to purchase these future cash flows based off of this assessment of probabilities. Uh, and you don't want to be subject to the sunk cost fallacy where you've done a lot of research and therefore uh, you feel like you have to make an investment because otherwise, how do you justify the research? The research is a goal into of itself where you're creating a library of ideas that you could act upon at various price points because it's rational based off of those circumstances. So it seems like by entertaining multiple possible uh, investment opportunities, you insulate yourself against the sunk cost uh, bias, where um, if, you, if you have very few that you're working on, you, you really run the risk of feeling like you've wasted a lot of time if you don't engage with them. By, by entertaining multiple, I, I think you, you sort of keep them as candidate investments and uh, can probably have more wisdom as to when you enter those positions. That seems like a good psychological tool to uh, keep in balance that you're not, you don't have to commit to these and you don't maybe get overcommitted psychologically and overinvested to where uh, it now becomes kind of emotional. And we run a whole set of uh, risks when we, when we get emotional about an investment position. We've talked about loss aversion. Uh, the, sunk, the sunk cost fallacy is also related to the endowment effect, where when you build up a history with uh, work on a position, it starts, you, you take ownership of it, you have a rich, colorful narrative, memories, and you can't help but get attached to it. And that's a very dangerous thing. Uh, you can become overly attached, at which point uh, you, you can't uh, get out of your uh, mode of thinking. Yes. And so to avoid those situations where, say, we, we do get past the hump of deciding to put a particular position on. It's a very good idea first to draft what we call a pre-mortem, where you think about all the various outcomes and the negative outcomes that could, that could arise and uh, so that you can isolate it. So if, if we end up losing money on this position, what will likely have been the cause? So you want to you identify those risks beforehand. And then after you have your pre-mortem, you want to put together what's called a roadmap. And the roadmap says that you will cut the position uh, at certain price points. Uh, it may be for risk control. That could be one place where you have a stop loss if you're going to only suffer so much degradation uh, in the price before uh, you decide that uh, you may be at risk of being on the wrong side of the probabilities. Uh, or where a certain catalyst develops after that catalyst that you would decide to cut the position uh, because that may be something that you felt like uh, you had identified in the course of your research uh, that was not properly appreciated by the market, once it comes to fruition, regardless of what's happened to the price of the security, you may choose to take the position off because now the market is aware of this contingency that you've identified and it's likely reflected in the price. Uh, also, uh, you may have an ultimate price target that you want to get to uh, and once the stock gets to that price, it's in the roadmap so that you don't start coming up with a variant narrative after the fact uh, and then uh, change the ultimate price at which you would ex exit the security. By creating this roadmap, it, it'll help you to guard against um, 
several biases, three of which come to mind for me, one of which is availability. So that's, this is a memory-based bias. Whatever happens to be available information at the moment is going to have an oversized impact on your decision. So by having a well-fleshed-out roadmap, uh, you have many uh, elements of, of information available to you. And this helps you uh, kind of insulate yourself against the news cycle. Um, when news is being generated on a regular basis, we tend to focus on it too much. And then we neglect things that are kind of in the background, but probably very relevant to a company's value. So that'll help you to uh, tamp down availability and also the recency bias. We also have a couple of uh, key attention biases that will impact us. Um, one is optimism bias, that you're, you're hoping things work out the way you, you want them to. And, uh, you know, hope is not a strategy. And if you have this uh, roadmap, you can really get a more objective sense of uh, really how things are playing out. This will also help insulate you against the ostrich effect, uh, just like the proverbial ostrich putting its head in the sand to avoid uh, engaging with the world. Uh, when bad news is coming out or things are running counter to your uh, predictions, uh, avoiding the news is a very bad idea. And this roadmap will help you get more of a sense of events simply aren't aligning perhaps with what you uh, had predicted. And it'll make it a little more psychologically tolerable to exit a position because you have done that the planning in advance. This all bleeds into the next step of the investment process, which is execution. We it's a much smaller step, which, of course, I think we can cover here uh, in this podcast as well before we go on to review and monitoring. Each of those instances that Dan just described are those problems that tend to come up after we have made the decision to go ahead and purchase a security. Once, once we've executed the decision that we've come up to in the analysis stage, uh, price will often act as a Rorschach test. Uh, we will have narratives that we have derived, uh, and if the price tends to go down, that will tend to be consistent with uh, what we think the negative narrative is. And if the price of the security goes up, that will often influence us to think about the positive narratives. That's why it's so important to have that investment roadmap that gives you guidance uh, about how to deal with a particular security once various uh, catalysts arrive or uh, based upon certain mechanical risk controls that you may have in place so that things like loss avoidance uh, or, uh, as Dan was saying, the ostrich effect, those do not overly influence your decision-making in the heat of the moment. Another risk you have to keep in mind when, when executing is uh, known as the curse of knowledge. And this is it's sort of a bias. It's really a, a principle of the way we think. Once we have done a lot of work and have a lot of information, we feel well-informed, we tend to assume others also share that same set of knowledge. And um, that's not always the case. And it's, it's extremely hard to realize that in others so, or, or the market in general. So that, that's another thing to keep in mind is you may have done more work than others have. And so you, you shouldn't always assume that everyone shares that same perspective that you happen to have developed. Yes, I've gotten into trouble with this a number of times before in the past, uh, and it can be particularly difficult because your purchases can actually influence market prices depending on the uh, amount of liquidity associated with issues that you're buying. So if I see what I think is a near-term catalyst, or I, or I think there's a near-term catalyst on the horizon, and I start buying a stock, 
and the stock starts going up, then uh, I can often perceive that uh, that might be a reflection of the fact that the market is also seeing this uh, catalyst on horizon. Reality is, is that a lot of times you're just being front run by uh, automated traders that see that there's heightened interest in the stock and uh, they bid it up uh, with no knowledge whatsoever of uh, any sort of a favorable outcome in the future. They simply see the incremental buyer that's participating in the uh, market. So it's important to be aware that often our actions will affect the outcomes associated with short-term price fluctuations and not use things like the curse of knowledge uh, that will lead us to believe that others may see the same things that we do because of price as a signal. Right. And price is going to have um, many factors that affect it. And so probably a good practice is to avoid over fixating on price fluctuation and reading too much into those data. Um, That again is one of those cases where you begin to kind of spin your own in the moment real time narrative. And that's never a good idea. So what we've really talked about today with the analysis step are uh, putting in place uh, a plan really to help you succeed. And you do that by preparing a model, uh, generating reports on that and uh, undergoing a thorough team review where you consider alternatives, think in terms of probabilities, try to think about base rates, and uh, really keep in mind that there's not only one way things will play out. There are numerous possibilities, and the more attention you put in up front, the better off you will be in terms of whether you choose to enter a position. And when you do so, you'll have a really strong plan of when to uh, exit. I think that's right. And I think that about wraps it up for us on this one. The last piece of the process that we'll cover after having uh, covered idea sourcing, idea vetting, fundamental research, analysis here, and execution here, uh, will be review and monitoring. And that will be the final episode in the process series. With that, we'll go ahead and proceed to exit our podcast. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks. Thank you for spending your time listening to the Mental Models Podcast. Content matters because your brain does not exist in a jar. Please subscribe. Visit mentalmodelspodcast.com for updates on Dan and George's upcoming book release titled Understanding Behavioral Bias, A Guide to Improving Financial Decision Making. Also available on mentalmodelspodcast.com are show notes, book reviews, and upcoming behavioral finance seminars with Dan and George. The Mental Models Podcast can be found on SoundCloud, iTunes, iHeartRadio, and Twitter. Please subscribe, and thank you for listening.